Welcome to the Starting Over Stronger Show, where you'll find help and hope for your divorce survival and recovery. Divorce well, live well. Teenagers, no matter how feisty and defiant they are, they want a grown-up to want to spend time with them. Hey guys, welcome back to Starting Over Stronger, Divorce Survival and Recovery. Today I'm here with Jeremy Lotz. Jeremy is a licensed professional counselor in Missouri and a nationally board certified counselor. He counsels individuals, couples, and families full-time since 2005. He first obtained his bachelor's in psychology from UCM in 2002 and a master's in mental health counseling from UMKC in 2004. He's worked with several agencies as a therapist, clinical supervisor, and training director, and now enjoys providing individual and family therapy in private practice in Lee Summit, Missouri, where he treats clients with depression, anxiety, codependency, emotional issues, child and adolescent behavioral issues, life management skills, mood disorders, parenting issues, and more. And of course, why he is here today he handles divorce and blended family issues. From what I know of you, Jeremy, you once worked in an adolescent residential therapeutic care, and I will let you share as much or as little about that experience as you wish, but I just want to say that knowing about that and just knowing you as a person, I'm certain you are such a blessing in the lives of teens whose parents are facing, enduring, or even recovering from divorce, and that is exactly why I asked you to meet me here today on the show to talk about this subject. So you, uh, I know, utilize a variety of therapy techniques, including EMDR, which I have mentioned in previous episodes as being life-changing for me and so many people I know, uh, as well as solution-focused family system, cognitive behavioral and DBT therapies. And people may or may not know what those are, and maybe some of that will rise to the surface as we chat today. But regardless, I want people to know that these therapies do exist and that they may want to explore them for themselves or their teens because we know that divorce is traumatic. And the number one takeaway that I hope for listeners today is to know that they nor their teens have to live with unresolved trauma, PTSD, triggers and coping mechanisms, anger and so forth, the addictive behaviors even that often mask what's going on beneath the surface. So again, Jeremy, thank you for being here. Welcome to the show. Just tell us, if you would, just briefly, when I asked you to come today and talk about teens and divorce, what made you want to say yes to exploring this issue? Hey, Annie, thanks for having me. I really like the work you're doing in offering support and care to parents during divorce transitions. I've worked with Blended Families Weekly since 2005, and I've learned the most effective way to cushion the fall for children experiencing parental divorce is to give direct care to the parents in a way that validates and addresses first their own stress, which can really take a back seat as we're trying to meet our children's needs. Mm -hmm. I believe the best gift that we give our kids during a stressful transition is a caregiver who's prioritizing their own care. Mm -hmm. It's the well-worn airplane and oxygen mask analogy. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, so before we dive into that, I always like to give listeners a little personal insight into the experts that they hear on the show. So other than the obvious care that you give to parents and kids who are going through divorce, do you have any personal experience in your life, either a divorce of your own or maybe a parent or someone else significant in your life? My mom and dad have remained married and I have not been divorced. 
my experience with this dynamic has been pro professional primarily. Okay. With the vast majority of my work being with blended families, um, dating back to the mid 2000s, mm -hmm. when I taught court mandated divorce education classes for parents and teenagers, I was excited to help create the teen curriculum that we used during those years that I was involved in Jackson County's focus program here in Kansas City. Well, thank you. I appreciate you sharing that. I just know it helps listeners to absorb the information better when they kind of have a little bit of frame of reference for who they're listening to. So, uh, you know, we know that being a teen whose parents are divorcing has to be one of the hardest things in life. I cannot relate personally because my parents didn't divorce when I was a teen. Uh, I was one of those who kind of wished they would. So let's say you are a teen and these two people who brought you into the world are parting ways. You either probably never saw it coming and cannot even imagine them being apart, or perhaps like me back in my teen years, you've been wishing for this reprieve for quite some time. And, you know, maybe you were even telling your parents that you wish they would get a divorce. My daughter did that for about four years prior to her dad and I's divorce. They are coming at it. Now is it's actually happening. And that brings obviously some major disorientation, kind of sort of maybe totally tearing your world apart, right? That this is right during a time when teens are exploring who they are socially, academically, physically, probably feeling off kilter anyway, you know, more uncertain of life than ever before. So stepping out of our teens shoes and back into our own as parents, what can you tell us, Jeremy, as the parents going through this divorce to help us get out of our own pain and struggle for just a few moments and give us a glimpse into our teens world right now? This is the hard part. By and large, we're far from our own teen years by the time we're supporting a teenager of our, of our own through a parental divorce. Transferring schools and blended family dynamics tend to be the two most naturally occurring seismic issues that most American teenagers face, in my experience. Teenagers don't need parents who are divorcing perfectly. Teenagers know that it's messy and chaotic. When we're going through it directly, there's an amplifier of like hurt and fear that we feel for our child that makes it feel so big and so loud that it kind of deafens us to some dynamics that are going on in the sound booth of teen reality. One, it's not foreign. Anything that happens in 40 to 50 plus percent of teenagers' lives isn't foreign. One out of every two kids in the lunchroom knows what this is like. Two, teenagers tell me that they want their parents to be addressing their own anger and their own stress before nagging them about their own. Lastly, on this issue, teenagers tell me that they need their parent to remember that they don't relate to their parent as a partner. They relate to their parent from the orientation of being their kid. So teenagers kind of say through their behavior and their grief process, let my feelings toward my parent be different than your feelings towards your ex or your soon-to-be ex. That's good. I had not even ever really thought of it that way, but yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it's and yet it's tough. It's it's heartbreaking to think about it from that perspective. And you know, obviously, as parents, the last thing we want to do is hurt our kids, especially if there have been problems for quite some time. As often there have been, I'm sure that most people would say it's a key factor in finally pulling the plug on the failing marriage is to do that kind of damage control, stop the bleeding, so to speak, to minimize the damage. 
by severing what's broken in order to create a safer, healthier environment for their children and their teens. So I just want to stop for a second and encourage you, if you are listening in right now and you're feeling a real heaviness right now about the visualization of your teen's experience, just know that we are absolutely not saying you're not doing the right thing or that you should feel any guilt or shame at all for the decision to divorce. You may very well be doing exactly what you need to be doing. The hard thing and the right thing are often the same thing. So hang in there, take courage, be strong, and know that nothing we say here today about your teens should be taken as judgment or shame-inducing in any way. We just want to focus not about the reality of what very well needed to happen, but we want to help you discover some ways you can minimize the negative impact on your kids and your teens. So some of what we have to say may surprise you or may be hard to hear. One of the main ways is simply in the words we choose to use when we speak to our kids about the other parent. And Jeremy, as I prepped to interview you on this subject, when I asked you to tell me the top three reasons the teens of divorce are in your office, you said parents bad-mouthing each other is not only the number one issue, but it's number two and number three because it's that big of a deal. And all joking aside, I knew what you meant. It's hard for everyone. Would you just elaborate a little bit on what this looks like, what teens are hearing, how it's affecting them? As I said, teenagers tell me frequently that they need their parent to remember. They don't relate to their parents as a spouse or soon-to-be ex-spouse. It's different to be a person's child than it is to be their marriage partner. So ultimately, they want to feel a right to their feelings. However, the anger, the hurt, the betrayal that we so often feel as an adult experiencing the divorce This can be so strong that there's an unconscious part of us that kind of needs our child to validate our decision, to experience their parent the way that we're experiencing our ex or soon-to-be ex. This is why the number one way I would argue to protect our relationship with our teenager during a divorce scenario is to, to do our work on our own hurt as a spouse, soon-to-be ex-spouse, and to tenaciously engage in support from other adults. When we don't do this, we end up looking to our children subconsciously to meet our needs, and this doesn't work. Adult needs require adult support, and we can avoid parentifying our children through this process if we showcase to them that we're doing our work, that we are connecting with like-minded adults that are also experienced in this or knowledgeable in this and can validate our needs. We have a whole cascade of needs that need to be validated from other sources, from adults. And if we're not getting that done, we will preconsciously be looking for our children to experience our spouse the way we did. Well, that makes a lot of sense. It's hard because there's so much emotion happening. And and I think a lot of times maybe parents don't even realize they're doing it. And then maybe when they do, maybe they don't realize it's as simple as what you just said. It's not as simple. (laughs) Well, and when I say say that, it it is simple and it is not easy. Right, Right. It is as simple as getting the support that you need somewhere else. And certainly that will make it easier not to feel like you need that validation from your child. 
Um, but it's a tough one. Yeah, obviously, they're all the way around. Divorce is an ugly time. It is so easy to allow your emotions to spill over where they shouldn't when you're on overload. And it's no longer about whether the glass is half empty or half full. It's, it, it is full to overflowing. There is no room for anything more. And we just have to be so cautious to keep it in the glass, figure out healthy ways and places to pour out what's overwhelming us. And I just could not agree with you more with everything you've just said here. And I know that there are listeners who needed this reminder. I do also have a little bit of a different perspective that I want to explore with you. And I'll take a few minutes here just to kind of preface it. I know some of our listeners are desperate to get an expert opinion on a bit of a twist on this. So they may have been hearing this recommendation from attorneys, mediators, well-meaning family and friends and counselors like yourself for a long time and trying so hard to abide by it, but struggling. And their struggle isn't because they don't get support elsewhere or they want to disparage their ex or soon to be ex or that they don't, or that they want to make their kids not like the other parent, but simply because for some people going through divorce, there are other much bigger factors in play. A couple of weeks ago, I interviewed a divorce attorney about the ways in which a divorce is different. If the person that you're divorcing has narcissistic, sociopathic, or psychopathic, or other controlling, manipulative, or deceitful behaviors, and whether there's ever been a diagnosis for that person or not, because let's face it, this is rare, because individuals with these tendencies by their very nature aren't often open to subjecting themselves to critical diagnosis, and, and if they do, usually have an agenda in doing so. But that being the case, we're not diagnosing anyone, but simply looking at this issue of how to speak with our teens about their other parent when that other parent is actually kind of destructive in their life, you know, maybe actively controlling and manipulating or deceiving uh, not only the, their spouse, but their children. And I wish we could say that this is always noticed and addressed in divorce, but I think we're a far, far away from that being the case. I personally coach women going through divorce whose controlling and manipulative exes or soon-to-be exes have charmed and lied and manipulated the facts with their attorney and every assigned mediator and child custody evaluator so much that these women, uh, their children are remaining at risk, both emotionally and psychologically, sometimes even physically, and are repeatedly hushed by the legal system during their divorce, and the outcomes are sometimes devastating in every possible way. And it's just a travesty to watch this unfold as someone has absolutely no legal resource or recourse to advocate for her children. And those who should have are blind to the real issues. And so now I know that this is a huge preface to this question. So, you know, just for you and everyone listening, I want to be 100% certain that we're not talking about your everyday divorce situation. We're talking, you know, using the word narcissist is beyond overused in our day and age. And it can be even used jokingly to refer to someone who's full of themselves. And that should not be the case. But someone with authentic behaviors of this type is destructive in ways that sometimes can't be explained uh, or measured, sometimes for years, if not decades or more. And it's beyond insidious. And the, the question that I wanna explore with you is how does a healthy parent, and you know, we use that term knowing that they too are not perfect and, and they need to understand 
what they need to understand about themselves, but their fears and toxic experiences with their other parent, what is and is not appropriate or okay for them to do and say, how can they love their other parent, but still set boundaries with them? If they're repeatedly being controlled or manipulated or lied to by the other parent, uh, it's so easy for well-meaning people and professionals to tell someone to never say anything bad about their kid's other parent. And to a degree, it is so true that our kids will internalize that as them being half bad if, if they have a bad parent. But how do we work around that while also modeling and training our children in what a healthy relationship and health, healthy communication and healthy boundaries look like for them? Because you know, we're talking about teenagers here today. These are, they're almost adults. We don't want to contribute in any way to them repeating patterns that we know now are unhealthy. Yeah, this is huge. There's a huge distinction to be made between the uh, common American and about the 1% of the general population that carries an antisocial or a narcissistic diagnosis. At the same time, abuse is common to occur against women. One out of three women worldwide will be experienced, will experience abuse in a intimate partner relationship throughout her life. My first four years in the counseling field were working with a domestic violence agency here in Kansas City. Hope House, which I'm still connected to and cross-refer to today, there is a difference, certainly, between negotiating a divorce transition with a parent who is functional and a parent who is dysfunctional. I guess a key distinction that parents need to have is that regarding your ex, Defending yourself is different than disparaging your spouse or your soon-to-be ex-spouse. It's important that our children, if we're in an abusive scenario where we're constantly being undermined and our character is being boldly maligned, it's important that our kids do experience some exposure to our reality. These are teenagers, as you say. These are not two- or three-year-olds. The good news, I would say, and I've seen this directly hundreds of times, is that the advantage over negotiating a relationship with a teen child during a divorce transition versus a very small child is that teenagers can, teenagers are like human polygraphs. And this is a very strong protective factor. I'll use the male pronoun for abusers, given that research consistently shows that upwards of 90% plus of people that are demonstrating abusive characteristics in an intimate partner relationship are male. If teenagers are seeing these things, they, they tend to know who is fighting for them and who is fighting for themselves. The good news is that this is what helps the constructive parent or the more mature parent or the healthy parent, you cannot fight for your child the same way. Like if, if it's an abusive or a malignant parent, they're, they're going to be so low in empathy. They're not noticing anybody else in the scenario but themselves. Yeah. 
that actually works really well for the constructive or the therapeutic parent that's focusing on the needs of the child. Uh And very often I've seen, of course, like every therapist, we've seen women in these scenarios get taken to the cleaners and they lose everything. They lose their job, their resources, their reputation. Very often in my experience, in a straight relationship, it's not the female participant in the marriage that's ending who is willing to play dirty. It's the male in the relationship who will play dirty and malign his soon-to-be ex. The good news is that the kids can tell. They may not be able to tell when they're 14 or when they're 16, but they can tell. Kids that I've worked with that were 15 when going through a parental divorce are now 30. I started doing this in 2005. And so I've had the luxury of clients that have kept in touch or gotten back in touch over the years. And I know who wins. The parent who's fighting for connection with their child and fighting for the meeting of the child's needs is the parent who ultimately wins the heart and mind of their child. And Annie, it's depressing. Like, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. It's depressing. It can take a long time. Parents ask me, well, when? When will, if they're working with an abusive parent involved, they'll say, when will my child know the truth? When will they be able to see through the mask? And it can take a while. Sometimes it's not until the child is in late teens, early, early 20s, but The good news and the redemption is that children know instinctively who they can count on to meet their needs and to be predictably available. The parents that get texts from their kids at college or in their first apartment, the parents that get visited over the holidays, I know conclusively from my experience, they are always the parent who was fighting for the child, not against the adult. Oh, that is so good. And you're right. It doesn't make it any easier in the moment. But I do hope that listeners today who are in this situation are hearing you say that our kids and our teens especially are lie detectors. They can tell. They know what's happening way beyond the words and actions of each parent and the actual values that are being put on display and that that matters to them and it will all work out eventually and and that is hard comfort at this particular time because you just want it to feel like like it's happening now or that there's even some beginning of that now and right it's just it, it as with everything that we have said and everyone listening already knows divorce is hard it's, it's painful. And I really appreciate you taking some time to really dive into that with me. I know it is heavy and it's a very delicate subject, but it's one that needs to be talked about because it's happening way more than most people realize. And we don't want anyone to exploit this, this advice. Your divorce is not one that's related to this type of dysfunction or abuse, then, you know, definitely it's just so very important to not disparage the other child's parent. But you made another great uh, comparison when you said there's a 
big difference between disparaging the other parent and defending yourself. And those two things can be done with grace and with a lot of wisdom. And obviously people need support to get to that place because there's so much emotion around it. It is just so important. And, and yet, you know, I think the real struggle for, we'll say women in these circumstances, but even a man, if he's in the same situation, the real fear is that we aren't stopping the patterns if we aren't more vocal about what's going on. And so we want to know that even if we have to do it gently or gracefully or, or in a way that feels different than we really want right now, we can still know that we are helping the next generation. We are stopping these generational curses and patterns that we are just now learning to free ourselves from at 30, 40, 50 something. And the way I've chosen to look at it is just as a gift that if leveraged well and handled with the utmost of care, we are giving our teens and 20 somethings the gift of a 10 or 20 year head start on healing their hearts and their minds to discover what real, healthy, true, loving relationships can be, can be before they repeat the patterns. So with or without this major toxic behavioral issue affecting divorce, some teens are coming to you to talk about feeling a load of guilt for wanting a relationship with the other parent. Is that because they have one parent bad-mouthing the other or trying to prevent the other's relationship or is there something inside of some teens that just makes them feel they have to choose sides or perhaps take up the cause of the parent they feel is bearing the biggest burden from their perspective? What causes this guilt and what can parents do to help teens to process those feelings in a way that validates what they're feeling? And then maybe why are they feeling it? And can begin to relieve them maybe of some of that burden and to reframe it in a way so they don't have to feel that way. They can see it in a more empowering and constructive way. Yeah, this is big. So, and I ask you like six questions. Well, yeah, I do that a lot. It's it's a lot. (laughs) A Um, lot to talk about. (laughs) There is, there is a lot to talk about. So there is something inside of kids that makes them feel they have to choose sides. It's going to be there. A divorce is an adversarial type of dynamic. Even in amicable divorces, on the legal paperwork, it's still somebody versus somebody. There is this dynamic that children internalize and parents can either feed that pressure or they can starve that pressure and validate the existence of that pressure and barring that their spouse or soon-to-be ex-spouse is not abusive, promote contact with the other parent. The kids watch. The teenagers know which parent generally, and I have to speak in generalities here, generally there is one parent that is showing more professionalism, let's say, or decorum than the other parent. I see that consistently. But But do the teenagers, sorry to interrupt you, but do the teenagers see that too, do you think? Or do you mean that just that is the case? Do the teenagers see what? See that there's one parent that's handling the divorce with more decorum? or Yes. Yes. This is a great question. They do see, but they can't say anything. Yeah. Because they're afraid that if they speak, 
if they speak up and talk to their parent about how it makes them feel when their other parent is being badmouthed, <clears throat> they don't want to lose access to their parent. So as best we can, we try to liberate our children from feeling they had to take sides. There is kind of an inherent guilt that the kids feel to feel some of what the parent is feeling toward their spouse or soon-to-be ex-spouse. I would say the most likely scenario I encounter is one where there's a primary caregiver post-divorce and a supportive caregiver post-divorce. There's usually one parent, in my experiences, just as one therapist, Uh there's one parent that the children are going to see more and be with more. And then there's the other parent that is going to be visited less. It just seems to be how it works out. I have some parents or some teenagers who it's more like 50-50, but generally it's children spending more time with one parent than the other because of logistics or custody arrangements, et cetera. The parent that is in the primary caregiver role, in my experience, is often the female parent in a heterosexual relationship. And the person that's in a primary or in a supportive role, the kids are visiting his house, would be the, the male parent generally. It's important for us as parents to try to reframe and to try to build up that we are invested in our child having a relationship with their parent. Their relationship to their parent is very different than our relationship to our spouse or our soon-to-be ex-spouse. Well, and, and I appreciate you clarifying and continuing to be cautious about female-male stereotype. I have addressed that issue in a previous episode. It is something that is going to continue to come up as we explore this topic, because as you said, you know, the statistics do show a great disparity between the number of male abusers as far as narcissists and, uh, you know, toxic dysfunction goes. So we, we, we do that not to discount the experiences of men who are the victim in these situations because we know that happens too but it's it's just that the majority of the people listening to this podcast today are females and probably in this case you know are really going to get more of the need more i guess i'm saying of the encouragement that we're offering today on this topic and so that isn't to say that uh, any any male listening who is feeling and dealing with all of these same things could not take this same advice, and we hope you will. We've said it several times, divorce is hard. It's painful. There's just no way around it, and everyone whose lives it touches cannot go unaffected. I heard recently that you can avoid the pain and trauma in your life, but you cannot heal it until you come face-to-face with it, grieve it, and reprocess it. And I think way too many people spend a lifetime pushing it down and thinking if they don't talk about it, that it's not affecting them. And of course, you know, as well as anyone, how untrue that is. As those going through divorce try to cope with their own pain and stress in hopefully positive, constructive ways, rather than avoidance, how they help their teens not to internalize their pain and stress during the divorce, but yet maintain the healthy emotional focus 
on their own pain and stress. I want to explore that a little bit with you because, you know, you mentioned that right from the beginning, that one of the things that your teams are saying is that they want their parents to take good care of themselves, to get the help they need so that their pain and stress is probably less deflected onto them. So I guess my question is, how do they take care of themselves in that way, but also help their teens not to internalize their pain and stress? Right. This is my favorite question of those that we've talked about today, because it moves us, if we've been theoretical at all, we're about to be practical. Again, teenagers don't need to see us execute or transition through a parental divorce flawlessly. They know it's messy. They know it's chaotic. They know it's frenzied. They need to see us go through that time with transparency, with vulnerability, with intention. Those are the things that really build relationship capital with teenagers. Because teenagers are polygraphs and because 93% of a message is communicated non-verbally, teenagers already know that we're stressed as their parents. So they just want us to be real? Yeah, they want us to not hide our struggle. They want us to, they want to see how we are managing what we're going through. Let me take it out of the divorce context per se and just go global for a moment. The top three complaints, and my practice is disproportionately teenager oriented because I was in, I worked in teen group homes for 12 years full time before going into private practice in 2017. And so my practice tends to be disproportionately focused on adolescent issues. And consistently, the number one stressor in a teenager's life coming into my office is worrying about their parents' stress. The number one concern always seems to be, my parents are always stressed. My parents are too stressed. Secondly, my family's too busy. And third, my parent is always on their phone. Those three things come up so frequently when teenagers are defining the landscape of their stress reality. I don't even know what fourth place would be. Now, with divorcing parents, we have some very practical things to go through. First, we need to, I recommend the parents that are going through divorce, buy a Fitbit or another wearable fitness tracker and start tracking their sleep. Sleep is the cornerstone of all mental health. And as parents going through divorce invest in sleep hygiene practices, their mental health is going to be fostered faster than doing anything else. Uncommon advice, honestly. <laughs> I know, I know. Hey, but you know, that's, uh, that's why I have you here because I want, I want to explore, I don't want just pat answers. I want to explore what, it, what are some things we can actually do that will make a difference. Sleep is the number one thing that is talked about insufficiently across the mental health landscape in all of America, from what I can tell and read. I'm never the first therapist that people have come to, it seems, but I'm usually the first, if not always the first, that's yeah. sleep hygiene issues. And this comes from brain science. Secondly, physical exercise. Uh, physical exercise is vastly underprescribed in the mental health community by professionals. This can be done in very practical ways, whether it's just push-ups at home or setting a step goal or um, having a weekly meeting with a 
an adult via Zoom or via uh, cell phone while you're on the treadmill, showcasing to your child that you are moving your body. Uh, if you have a, like I said, if you have a, a mentor or a buddy, so to speak, that you're going through the season of life with, do something physically active and show that, show that to your child. The divorced parents I'm working with, as they showcase through their example that they're going to be focused on sleep, they're going to get initiated and maintained a physical exercise regimen those kids become less worried 100% of the time. Those kids become less worried in my office because they see their, they see their caregiver doing things that allay the child's anxiety. Children need to see caregivers tangibly taking care of themselves. The third area that's underutilized in the mental health landscape as parents are going through a divorce is nutrition. You start with sleep. If I'm coaching an adult on divorce transition issues, I'm going to be helping them assess their sleep, their physical activity level, and then third, their food intake. And I'm not a nutritionist, but we know that depression and anxiety are more related, These we know from modern research, to inflammation than they are to chemical balances or imbalances. So if we can boost consumption of whole foods, hydration, the brain is 73% water, I think. If we can focus on hydration and sleep and exercise and whole foods, we're going to be showing our teenager a version of us that is handling a difficult transition and season that they're never going to, they're never going to forget. Yeah, absolutely. Wow, that is so good. And you know, it makes so much sense. And I think what is what you're saying really is just you don't have to do sleep, exercise, and nutrition perfectly. You just got to do them a little bit better every day and let your kids see that. Critical because our kids need to learn that too. And it's just not taught often enough in our society. And, and what better way to teach something than by example? Right. There's so much talk in the clinical community now about this book from Bezel van der Kolk mm-hmm. called The Body Keeps the Score. And then we've got preeminent neuro guy, Dan Siegel, who is putting out such good information about how we can nourish our brain. As in, Because I specialize in trauma, I know what a trauma brain is acting like mm-hmm. when it's being fed those four nourishing behaviors. And when it's being starved from those four nourishing behaviors, it can greatly, as practical and simple, oversimplistic as it might sound, it greatly cushions the traumatic uh, load that an adult encounters when they're trying to go through this protracted season of adversity. And then they're going to have something to give their teenager who is depressed or who is grieving or who is bitter or angry or otherwise. You know, when you were talking earlier, before you answered the question, you were saying that kids are saying they're stressed and, uh, you know, they're more worried about their parents' stress and distraction and, and so forth. 
as you were saying that, what I, the question that was in my mind was what are, when they're saying my parents are so stressed, my parents don't have time for me, we're so busy, they're so distracted with their phones, what are they not saying? That's a great question, and it's, it's hard. I'm not a mind reader, but <laughs> teenagers, one, one brutal paradox, probably the most brutal paradox that I, I encounter in supporting parents who are raising teenagers is that teenagers push their parents away, yeah. and their parents become reluctant to initiate. Teenagers want you to push. We have to not listen to what they say. We have to watch what they do. Yeah. I, I see that, and I get it. In the adult world, words matter. We listen to what people say. If a teenager who's vying for privacy and freedom says, go away, I want privacy and freedom. In the adult world, we, we, we try to do what adults request. Every time they catapult us from the island of connection and togetherness, they are, make no mistake, they are looking to see whether we're going to swim back to it. And this, this has been so well represented in the trauma teens that I've worked with primarily over the years. They fight the staff. They don't talk in therapy. They're waiting to see if you're going to leave. They want connection. Teenagers want to be fought for. They don't know that they do because the prefrontal cortex isn't fully online yet. And so they can't really detect that they're wanting this, that they're craving this. Their HR system really hasn't kind of shown up. Wow. They do want, what I think they're not saying is two things. They're saying, am I important to you? I know it's cliche, but children, even 17-year-olds, even they do spell love, T-I-M-E. They're watching to see if you're going to fight for them. A lot of my dads in particular struggle with this dynamic because they're like, my teenager says they want me to leave them alone, and all my teenager cares about is video games and the phone. And I'm like, well, I know that's what they say, but watch what they do if you schedule with them a time to take them out for a burger or go see a movie or go to the Starbucks drive-thru. My teenagers, no matter how feisty they are, they're showing up. Yeah. They're going to those things. They want time with their parents. They just don't know that they do and they can't ask for it because that's not cool. But right. the second thing they're not saying they're looking to the parent. This is true of all kids of all ages. Children look to their parent to learn what they feel about themselves. So children look to their parents to see what their parents' experience of their child is. And I know it's clunky and I'm not saying it well, but children they want are, you to mirror back to them what you see. Them. They're, they're learning about themselves from how we relate to them. And they're getting feedback all the time from us. And they want to know fundamentally that what's buried, I think, within those three confessions, my parents is too stressed, my family's too busy, and they're always on their phone. Teenagers, though I know that they fight it, they want to feel pursued mm -hmm. and they want to feel important there's so many different directions that i could go with this and in interest of trying to keep it focused on the teens 
I will just say the book, a book title came to mind and it's not probably even on this subject, but it's, I hate you. Don't leave me. I think that just kind of summarizes what you're saying. The more they push us away, the more they are seeking for us to connect with them and fight for that connection with them, even though they're not going to ever maybe let on that that's really what they want or that if you actually do it, that they appreciate it. But just, we want parents, you know, to know that that is what the situation is so they can act with wisdom in those situations, whether or not they get any kind of confirmation from the teen. Wow, this has been really good. I know that the listeners with teens are walking away today with something, several somethings, important to consider, to pray about, and to apply in their own lives with their teens. But um, we're going to start kind of talking about wrapping up, and I want to make a quick application to the younger kids of divorce, even though we're really focusing today on teens. I did select that topic because there are, in many ways, you know, teens are like kids in adult bodies and situations where there are many applications to make on today's questions for younger kids on age-appropriate levels. I don't know how much you work with younger kids, but if you would just, even if it's just a quick answer, just give us a bird's eye view on this. There will be future episodes dedicated specifically to little ones, but for today, just give us an overview on how parents might apply some of these same lessons with their younger ones about how they speak to the speak about the other parent, how their little kids may feel guilt about who they live with and how much time they spend, and then, you know, internalizing their parents' stress. It's critical, the notion and the proverb regarding us not bad-mouthing, disparaging, as we said earlier, the other parent. This is the critical lesson for parents of children of any age. Kids that are teenagers are going to, they're going to respond more verbally to that stress if they respond at all, if they clue the parents in on their discomfort at how a parent is discussing the other parent. Little children don't speak up. I work with children, some younger children. I tend to work with children five five and above. I regularly have kids in my office that are between uh, five and 12, even though my practice is, you know, centric toward 13 to 25-year-olds. I would say it's a lot easier for me to help parents whose children are younger when they're going through divorce because teenagers are a lot more contradictory than children are in my experience in their behaviors and what you said a moment ago was accurate that whole i hate you don't leave me type of dynamic is defining of a negotiating a relationship with your teen with children the number one thing to do if you're trying to help cushion their fall through a divorce scenario is to play play is the work of children as you know, child therapists like myself have said for decades, they need to see you with water pistols and water balloons. They need to see you laughing. You need to do funny Snapchat filters together and (laughs) take pictures that are goofy. Anything you can do to help boost a child's production of serotonin and dopamine through laughter, through play, through physical contact is really going to help a child ground in this season where they feel so shaky. They have a lot less agency than teenagers do. If, you know, they could be driving, they could be on teams, they could have jobs. Children, they need a lot more tangible and physical connection 
to know that they themselves are okay with what is going on in their lives. Well, that makes sense. So it sounds a lot like the principles are all the same. It's just that it's going to look a little bit different with kids and that it's less focused on words and more focused on action and uh, play and, you know, those types of things. So that's, that's good. That's good to know. I know that uh, one of your least favorite parts of your job has to be the fact that you have limitations on your time, which prevent you from being able to help everyone who needs this kind of help for their adolescent or their family. Uh, Did I see that you have had to stop accepting new patients at this time due to a full client load? So I'm not sure when this podcast is going to air. At the time of recording today, my caseload is full. I tend to process families through pretty quickly. My okay. average length of stay in services is three to eight visits. Mm-hmm. I have a lot of homework and I taper sessions and spread out sessions to preserve costs and facilitate client autonomy. Mm-hmm. So um, best way to reach me is through my website, www.lotstherapy.com. That's okay. L-O-T-Z therapy.com. We'll just hope that they can go ahead and jump on there and see, uh, you know, where, whenever they're listening to this, uh, that, you know, if this is a time that you might be able to take on new clients. And if not, I'm sure that you have ways of getting them connected with other like-minded mental health professionals like yourself that they can explore these issues with. Right. And, and there's a couple options. So if, if by the time the podcast airs, you email me and I'm full, I've had good success with the KC Relationship Institute. Um, yeah. And that they're, they're in independence here on the Missouri side and uh, where I am in Lee Summit. So mm-hmm. independence, it's um, available at kcrelationshipinstitute.com kcrelationshipinstitute.com. I've had success with them. There's also something that's increasingly present for the reasons we've talked about today in the whole clinical landscape. High conflict co-parenting is increasingly sought after. It's not a service that I specialize in, but I have a, a colleague that is one of the most highly recommended high-conflict co-parenting therapists in the area. Her name is Kristen Swan, Kristen Swan, and her website is Swan Therapy, S-W-A-N, swantherapy.com. She's one of the top high-conflict co-parenting therapists that I've encountered in the area. Well, those are some good resources. And so that you know, and uh, listeners, check out the episode descriptions for the links. You didn't have time to grab that just now. Jeremy, I really appreciate, again, uh, you being on the show today, your valuable time and contribution to this topic and everyone that it affects. I think you have given our listeners some very important ways, uh, new ways that they can look at their teens as they go through the divorce with them and that we can carry this information on to others whose teens or even young adults may still be struggling years after their parents' divorce. As we close, let's switch gears real quick. Our tips thus far have been on what not to do. So what I would love to close out with is if you would just leave the listeners with some to-dos. Knowing what not to do is very helpful, but having a short, 
bullet list of things we can do now that will help ease our teens burden and build their trust and confidence helps parents and kids alike so what few tips might you throw out real quick just to help parents make that difference Right. So the cornerstones for teen mental health are similar to the cornerstones of adult mental health. But if you're trying to support a teenager in their process of transition through a parental divorce, I would triage a few things in this order. Not only fight for your sleep, but fight for your teenager's sleep. Teenagers need eight to 10 hours of sleep a day. The average teenager in America reports getting a little over six hours of sleep per day based on my understanding of the literature. Uh, This creates a lot of inflammation in the brain and in the body. And those teenagers are even more impulsive, distracted and irritable than they would be at baseline levels if they're sleep deprived. Fighting alongside your teenager, prioritizing sleep hygiene for them, helping them be physically active, trying to limit screen times and close proximity to bedtime. Having a regular time, the minimum that I prescribe for parents of teenagers is once a month that they connect one-on-one with their teen off-site. So this would be like two to four hours or so that you're going out to a park, you're going out to go fishing, catch a movie, go walking in the neighborhood, go garage hailing, do something intentional, really becomes a critical time that they'll remember. Teenagers are constantly nostalgic in my office over those types of things. They don't remember the concert they went to with their friends. They don't remember their victories in sports generally. What teenagers come in, and parents don't know this because it's behind closed doors, but what really gets kids in my office feeling nostalgic are those times when they're going to a concert with their parents or they're taking a road trip or they're looking at colleges together, spending that time, making it intentional, giving your child some dignity and scheduling that, showing up at their door in the evening and saying, hey, I miss you. I really want to connect. Let me know what time you have and what would work best in the next couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. And then come back in a couple hours to their door again and say, hey, have you had a chance to look over your school stuff, your work stuff? I really want to make this a priority in my schedule. Let me know what you need. That's a critical way to really, through a drip system, build a strong relationship with your teenager. There's a lot I could say. I love helping parents build stronger relationships with their teenager It can be done through a lot of simple, practical things. We just have to really kind of look past so much of a bluster, the blustery persona that teenagers have behaviorally, because they're going to show up. My teenagers, no matter how feisty and defiant they are, they want a grown-up to want to spend time with them. Well, and I would say you're right. Sleep and time have to be the most important things. And they, you know, they, they're just trying to figure out who they are. And it's kind of an ugly process. And I think the best thing that you said today is that parents need to look past that facade and realize that it doesn't matter what they're saying or how they're acting. They want time with you because it is fleeting. And, you know, as a, as a parent myself of a 20 and 22 year old, I will tell you, it will be gone before you know it. And they will be living somewhere else. 
and you will want those years back. And I know that you don't think you will because I didn't think I would either. And I'm getting a little teared up just thinking about it because those teen years are so heavy and so hard and they push you away so much. And if you didn't know what you know now after this episode today, you would might, you might let them and it, and that time will be gone. And so just know if you didn't hear anything else today that your teens want time with you and that that will make all the difference in the world. Thank you listeners for being brave enough to dig into this with us in consideration of ways maybe that you've fallen short unintentionally. I hope and I believe and I know Jeremy does too that like a massive ship on open waters you can make even a one degree shift in your life your divorce and with your kids and teens and as a direct result of that slight correction end up in a totally different destination remember that as you think about ways you want to apply what we talked about today again check out the resources in today's episode description to connect with jeremy or myself for more information about what you need for help during your divorce and hope as you are starting over stronger see you next time